Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're trying to spoon-feed you the latest research. Let's take a quick look ahead, and this week we'll be covering, I'm going to be honest, it's all pediatrics this week, guys. So first off, vomiting children, ugh, no thank you, on Dancitron in preschoolers. After that, an interesting case of life after death to make you reconsider when to call the time of death. Then C. diff causes diarrhea. Kids have lots of diarrhea. So why don't we test them for C. diff? From the fourth article, how to train your emergency physician to order less x-rays. And then finally, new guidelines for the tiniest babies with fevers. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the glorious Clay Smith. Now, without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled Oral on Dancitron Administration in Children Seeking Emergency Department Care for Acute Gastroenteritis, a patient-level propensity-matched analysis out of the annals of emergency medicine. One of my absolute favorite antiemetics, due in large part because of its really cool name, is on Dancitron, which is safe in children with mild acute gastroenteritis. So this is something we actually tend to use quite a bit. But are we helping or are we just over-medicating? This was a planned secondary analysis of prospectively collected data, which is really honestly just a fancy way of saying this is a retrospective study. They included almost 800 children aged 3 months to 4 years old with at least 3 episodes of vomiting. They selected 528 of those children and then propensity matched them for the relevant clinical characteristics, with half of them getting on Dancitron and half of them not. In the group that received on Dancitron with propensity matching, there was a 50% lower odds of IV fluids being given at the index visit. But unfortunately, there was no decrease in initial hospitalization rates, 72-hour hospitalization rates, or even the frequency of vomiting or diarrhea by 24 hours. So with all those factors being unchanged, I'm kind of curious what might have motivated the difference in IV fluids. The administration of ondansetron in this study was at the discretion of the physician, and so it was unblinded. So maybe not giving that treatment might have had the physicians opt towards rehydration. Propensity matching might help mitigate bias, but it won't get rid of it. Perhaps the results of this study might be that people tend to give ondansetron or rehydrate, but that's kind of a stretch. In a spoonful, ondansetron was associated with reduced odds of young children needing IV fluids, but didn't have any effect on hospitalization rates or short-term outcomes. So the benefit is still questionable. Then we have the second article, which was titled Unassisted Return of Spontaneous Circulation Following Withdrawal of Life-Sustaining Therapy During Donation After Circulatory Determination of Death in a Child out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. Here we have the Lazarus Phenomenon, or perhaps better named Autoresuscitation if you're not familiar with Lazarus, the religious figure. This phenomenon is when a patient spontaneously achieves ROSC several minutes after resuscitation efforts have stopped. Given that this is, I mean, a possibility, most organizations actually recommend waiting at least 2 to up to 30 minutes before the final pronouncement of death. Though it should be noted that the outcomes of these spontaneous resuscitations are pretty much unanimously death within 24 hours. Now, most of the time, the exact minute that death occurs really isn't going to be that important. However, if it's a situation in which you're withdrawing care and then there's going to be a subsequent organ donation, then the time of circulatory death is important. 
Here, we show you a case report of a two-year-old boy with influenza B who had an unfortunate hospital course. He ended up developing bacterial tracheitis and arrested after suctioning. Despite rapid CPR, intubation, ICU care, and even targeted temperature management, an MRI on day 8 showed severe hypoxic ischemic injury to the brain, and the decision was made to withdraw life-sustaining treatment and then pursue organ donation. The child was extubated in the operating room being held by his family as the time of death was awaited. After cessation of breathing and with no arterial waveform for more than two minutes, death was determined. However, at about four minutes without breathing, or again without arterial waveform, the child resumed spontaneous breathing and mounted a systolic blood pressure of up to 140 millimeters mercury. The family was actually brought back in in order to hold their child for another 20 minutes before death was again declared. This time, the organs were harvested, and that was the end of that. Thankfully, the family did not find this to be a traumatic experience and actually complimented the strength of their child. So the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends waiting two to five minutes before circulatory determination of death and the initiation of organ donation. These authors argue that perhaps five minutes is actually the better target, as this would avoid some awkwardness as you saw in this situation. In truth, it's honestly only three more minutes of your time. It seems pretty reasonable. In a spoonful, after withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment, these authors argue that you should be waiting the full five minutes after cessation of respiration and pulsatile arterial flow, instead of just two minutes. Try not to base too many of your decisions on case reports, but honestly, this seems like a small sacrifice to make. Then after that, we have the third article, which was titled, The Prevalence of Detection of Clostridioides Difficile Among Asymptomatic Children, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the JAMA Pediatrics. After that big outbreak in the early 2000s, you know what I'm talking about, C. diff has stayed on the minds of many whenever anybody thinks of a diarrheal illness. Most of the time, it's great that we think about it early, the testing is pretty easy to do, it's just a quick PCR of a stool sample, but it's not always an appropriate test to do. There are many children, at least anecdotally, who are being sent to hospital for admission because a diarrhea sample came up positive for C. diff, and they're afraid that of this potentially fatal disease. So to assess the true risk, it's best that we know the baseline rate of colonization with C. diff in this population. This article was a systematic review of 95 studies, collecting together over 19,000 patients who did not have diarrhea and were under 18 years of age. From this population, the subset with the highest rate of asymptomatic presence of C. difficile was infants aged 6 to 12 months old, of which 41% were colonized with C. difficile, 14% of which were toxigenic strains. The next highest was children 5 to 18 years old, in which there were rates of 12% overall being colonized with C. difficile and 5% being toxigenic. The rates of colonization changed actually a little bit depending on where it was that you were sampling. Rates were actually a little bit lower in the Americas than in Europe and the Western Pacific. What matters though is that you have to keep this in mind when you're testing children, particularly young children, to keep yourself from hanging your hat on that diagnosis too early. The IDSA recommends against testing children less than 12 months old at all for C. difficile. In the other children, well, you should have ruled out everything else first, essentially. This all comes from fairly high-quality data with low risk of bias, but still about half the studies had at least one quality or bias issue. 
In a spoonful, there are very high rates of C. difficile colonization in children under one year of age, which decreases as they get older. And then we have the fourth article, which is titled Reducing Chest Radiographs in Bronchiolitis Through High Reliability Interventions, out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Just like last week, we're talking about stuff that you shouldn't be doing for kids with bronchiolitis. Last week, we talked about bronchiodilators. They don't help. Now I'd like to remind you that they don't usually need to be x-rayed either. Once you've done one though, then you're more likely to find something, and then you're probably more likely to give antibiotics. The American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends against routine chest x-rays. So how do we get physicians to actually follow that advice? These authors did a quality improvement initiative spanning from 2012 to 2020 to reduce the number of chest x-rays in pediatric patients with bronchiolitis, and it actually worked. They reduced ordered chest x-rays from their baseline of 42% all the way down to 19%, and there was no adverse impact on repeat ED visits. They found that educational interventions, no matter how well-intentioned, were just simply not helpful in the long term. However, if you change the order set for bronchiolitis to not default to having the chest x-ray box being checked off, as well as giving best practice alerts and individual feedback on ordering practices, well, this was much more effective in changing the use of chest x-rays for bronchiolitis. This is important for bronchiolitis, but probably generalizes to almost anything that we do in the emergency department. The best decision should always be made the easiest decision. And that's probably the best way there is to change behavior. Also, giving individual feedback, well, it removes the ability to point fingers. And that's probably a good idea, too. In a spoonful, a redesigned workflow was a much better quality improvement initiative than education for reducing the amount of chest x-rays that were used in bronchiolitis. And then finally, the fifth and last article, which was titled The Evaluation Management of Well-Appearing Febrile Infants Aged 6 to 60 Days Old out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, here we have an update of the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines for caring for febrile neonates and infants. If you care for young children, you should probably read this whole article. These new guidelines give three algorithms. This is in recognition that the risk of invasive bacterial infections, meaning bacteremia or bacterial meningitis, actually drops from weeks two and three to week four of life. Now, none of these algorithms will replace clinical judgment, of course, and shared decision-making is always the best route to engage with with your patients and with their parents. Now, these guidelines are intended only for specific populations, and that's really important to always keep in mind, because applying them elsewhere isn't going to be as effective and really isn't what they're meant for. These guidelines address infants who are well-appearing, with documented rectal temperatures above 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit in the past 24 hours at home or in the hospital. These children also have to be born between the gestational ages of 37 to 42 weeks, and they have to be between the ages of 8 and 60 days old, coming from home. This excluded babies who were preterm, immunocompromised, those who had probable sources of infection or other medical problems or an obvious source of fever. Now, I would love to go through each of these algorithms one by one, but honestly, only the first one's feasible, so let's just do that one. If the child in front of you is 8 to 21 days old and fits into the population that we just discussed, then you need a urine analysis and culture, a blood culture, and an LP 
and then you can consider adding inflammatory markers to that if you'd like and you think it's clinically relevant. Then you need to start IV antibiotics. If there's a risk for HSV, then test and treat for that too. If everything comes back negative, then by 24 to 36 hours, those children can actually go home. If you find an infection, of course, then you need to keep treating it. This is just the tip of the iceberg, even for this algorithm. They have so, so, so much more to say about everything. They have all these little bullet points and little numbers and asterisks so that they have way more to say. The other two algorithms, well, they have a lot more branch points, which give you a lot more nuance to your care. I highly encourage that you get a copy of these guidelines and read them for yourself. In a spoonful, if you care for young children, then I'm afraid you have 40 pages of reading to do from the American College of Pediatrics. All right, so that wraps us all up. Let's do a quick review of everything we covered just to, you know, sink it all in. From the first article, though there was a risk of bias, the use of ontansetron was associated with a decreased need for IV fluids in young children. Didn't change any more important patient-oriented outcomes, though, like rates of vomiting or even hospitalization. From the second article, if you can wait two minutes, let's be honest, you can probably wait five minutes, just to be certain that you have true circulatory death. It would have paid off in this case report. Then from the third article, don't jump the gun on C. difficile testing in young children. Many have asymptomatic colonization, especially those under one year of age. And then from the fourth article, so you want to change a physician's behavior. Well, you might have to tamper with the thing that's most precious to them, their workflow. Careful though, mess it up too much and you might have a full-on revolt. And then finally from the last article, some things can't be reduced to a spoonful, unfortunately, try as I might. But everyone should still know about them. The American Academy of Pediatrics' new guidelines for treating febrile neonates in infants is probably worth a read. And that wraps us all up. That's everything that we had to cover from this week, which reminds me, you've earned them, we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles that we've summarized can also be found in that very same place. And if you haven't already, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and get all these same spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is really to try to help you provide the best patient care through spoon feeding. And that's why we're trying to keep you up to date with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.